Today's episode is sponsored by Alone in the Dark. The highly anticipated new reimagination by Pieces Interactive and THQ Nordic. Play as Edward Carnby or Emily Hartwood to explore your environments, fight monsters, solve puzzles, and uncover the true secret of Dorsetto Manor. Our favorite heroes are brought to life by Hollywood stars Jodie Comer of Killing Eve and David Harbour of Stranger Things, who lend not only their voices, but their appearance and their formidable acting skills to the brave protagonists. Experience a deep psychological story that goes beyond the realms of the imaginable, all dreamed up by Mikhail Hedberg, cult horror writer of Soma and Amnesia. The team at Pieces Interactive is supported by monster designer and legendary Guillermo del Toro collaborator Guy Davis, as well as doom jazz legend Jason Conan, who provides his eerie and haunting melodies for the right atmosphere. Alone in the Dark is available March 20th on PS5, Xbox Series XS, and PC. Pre-order your copy now and escape into the dark. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This podcast and the bonus content we've been able to provide during the week is made possible thanks to our patrons. Please join me in welcoming and thanking new patrons. Allison Owens, Aaron Elizabeth Ray, Missy Lynn, Jacob McLean, Neon Lights 218, Bill Lisi, Eric Cheek, John Comstock, Ciara Haynes, no. This is... No, no, wait. That was just the patron's name. Sneaky. I'm not even mad. Ah, uh, where was I? Lena Helson? Lauren Lindemann, Leon Scarlett, Johan Larson, Arlene Weenie, Kay Clark, Kathy Paviz, Jasmine Estella, Trevor B., Mercedes McGrate, Acid Chris 1313, Lean Mark, Demetrius M., Daniel Locke, Jeremy the Hammer Van Lannan, Nicole Topper, Cody from Wisconsin, Liz Chakoff, Alexis Nunez, Penny Lane, Intellectrician, Bruce Fernande, found the staller on the ground, you should have it. Aw. EQ Riono, Stoner Vamp 3, and Kyle Harless. Our patrons mean everything to us, and we do all we can to give back for their generosity. Starting for as little as $1 a month, their reward tiers include bonuses like early commercial free access to all episodes, shoutouts, weekly Patreon-only bonus episodes, immediate access to our entire back catalog of almost 500 Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes, coffee cups, t-shirts, and logo hoodies. If you'd like to see how you can support the podcast and get rewarded for doing so, please check out our reward tiers at patreon.com creepypod. We had a really great response this week to our bonus episodes of I Drive for Cerber, narrated by Nate Dufort, and there may be more from the series available in the future.
For now, we'll have bonus episodes on Tuesday and Thursday again this week while we continue to prepare something really big. Like, hours and hours and hours big. Things are weird for everyone, so Creepy is committed to doing what we can to help distract all of our listeners for as long as we can afford to. Thank you all for listening. And for real this time. No. This is Creepy, a podcast dedicated to sharing the most famous, chilling, and disturbing creepypastas and urban legends in the world. Whether these stories truly happened or are simply fabrications is for you to decide. These stories may contain graphic depictions of violence and explicit language. Listener discretion is advised. Creepy presents Tunda, written by Shadow Swimmer seventy seven. The Journal of Thomas Wicker, November third, nineteen ten. There are a thousand ways to die in the Columbian rainforest. I first gained this appreciation as a boy when, in a questionable bit of parental inspiration, father allowed me to accompany him to inspect our family's South American holdings, in particular a coffee plantation located on the eastern slopes of the Andes. The expedition was considered almost routine, a chosen path well known to our guards and guides, yet even so we encountered no small number of difficulties in our travels. In one case, the hardship was self-imposed. A famous spendthrift, father only secured enough Peruvian bark for the white members of our party. Plagued the entire way by incessant swarms of disease-bearing mosquitoes, several of the native porters fell ill with the sweats. Too fatally. In another instance, we stopped along our route in a small village to rest for a day or two. One of father's men, uh, Mr. Casper by name, went into the jungle with a local girl. His intentions only too clear. Our party received a shock when the girl returned a short time later, naked and covered in blood, babbling incessantly in her native tongue. One of our guides who spoke the language eventually got the tale from her. It seems that in the throes of their... passion, Mr. Casper failed to notice the stealthy approach of one Pantera Unca, the most deadly of Amazonian cats. The feline made short work of the man, powerful jaws latching mercilessly onto the back of his exposed neck while the girl, pinned beneath the victim, could only watch helplessly. We found him the next day hanging from the high branches of the tree, bloodless and stored like so much meat in an ice box for later consumption. Father, proclaiming Mr. Casper's demise as the ripened fruit of the man's own stupidity, would not deem to give him a burial. Rather, we continued on our way to the plantation. The body left to the beast who had claimed it through those ancient rites of the hunt. All said, the trip was extremely educational, if in an utterly unconventional sort of way. Returning home to America, after several long months of travel, my young mind was open to the disparity that existed in the world, never more aware of the benefits offered me by the accrued wealth of my family. I'm unsure the precise effect father had hoped my accompanying him on the journey would induce, 
but I do know that he must have viewed the reality as a most spectacular failure. I had tasted the life of the explorer, the excitement and the danger, and found it wanting. What was adventure to modern comforts of a privileged life? I swore an oath to myself that never again would I be deprived of modern convenience, that the most daring I would undertake would be through new culinary experience, or perhaps seducing the exotic princess of a foreign land. I threw myself into this newly chosen lifestyle with gusto, and can accordingly mark with some significant accuracy when father's eventual hatred of me took seed in our relationship. It is thus, with some surprise, that I find myself now returning to that same plantation I visited in my youth. Since father's death almost a decade ago, I have generally allowed proxies to take care of the day-to-day responsibilities of managing the family holdings. Father ensured he employed only the most educated lawyers, selected the hardest-willed and most obedient men as his overseers and foremen. And so the Wicker Estate has continued to run itself as some kind of great machine whose engineer has long since abandoned the controls. This is fortunate, as I have no particular interest in business myself. The fact that no doubt served as another blight on my character in Father's eyes. But certain circumstances demand my attention. I shall refrain from again recounting in these pages the strange events surrounding Father's murder. Just so... I have utterly failed to convince any others to the verity of such tales, and have subsequently ceased to make the attempt, last time thought more cracked than father in his final days. No matter. They were not there. They did not see what my eyes beheld then or since. Indeed, much as my expedition with father first opened my mind to the nature of a privileged life, So too did his death widen my perspective to those ungodly hidden things with which men share this world. Like a jaguar silently stalking the Amazonian canopy. It is due to this enlightened viewpoint. One that allows the existence of the fantastic and occult alongside the otherwise commonplace and mundane. That I am responding personally to the devilry currently afflicting the operation of my Columbian plantation. I received a letter just over a month ago from Mr. Giles, long-time overseer of the facility. Life near the Andes jungle is tenuous, at best, with death always a hair's breadth away, as illustrated by my own youthful journey. Yet Mr. Giles' reported recent events were perpetrated by something far more than any such commonly suffered maladies. It was this past June that the first of the disappearances had occurred. Initially a small thing. A native man or two failing to show up to his picking shift. Such absences were easily attributed to a too hard night of drinking or a simple decision to move on from the plantation. The work was hard and unforgiving, and turnover was regularly high among the laborers. But after a week of disappearances, there were none of a dozen or so men managing to return from their absences, it became clear that something more sinister was afoot. Mr. Giles ordered the foreman to interview the laborers, forcefully enough to determine that they were being truthful in their ignorance as to the nature of the disappearances. Indeed, all that was ascertained by the inquiry was that the victims had to this point all been young men between the age of 16 and 30, and all had vanished sometime during the hours past sundown. Confirming a further lack of knowledge among the general population, 
Mr. Giles proceeded along a logical line of reasoning. It was not unheard of for a local predator to gain a taste for man flesh, much as in the case of Mr. Casper's undignified demise. The foreman organized a rotating series of hunting parties to conduct forays into the jungle, searching for some sign of the murderous beast or its victims, to no avail. Since an act of confrontation with the culprit had proven unsatisfactory, a number of clever devices were rigged near the perimeter of the plantation, as well as outside the small adjoining village in which the majority of the workers lived. Mr. Giles' overseers were a hard, experienced lot, and comprised a broad collective knowledge of fieldcraft and ingenuity, reflected in the nature of their improvised booby traps. Tiger pits from Burma, man-catchers from Malacca, punji stakes, deadfalls, and a dozen other such deadly workings were employed, their construction taking on a competitive air as each man sought to outdo his compatriots. But despite these Herculean efforts, the disappearances continued unabated until almost a tenth of Mr. Giles' force had gone missing. Men began abandoning the plantation in droves, unwilling to wager their lives in the defense of their livelihood, with ultimately only one in four men choosing to stay on. The November harvest ripe and unpicked, the beans in danger of rotting. It was with the deepest regret Mr. Giles was at least forced to report the inevitability that the plantation's production would fail to meet quota. To be honest, news of the potential loss of revenue did not overly concern me. My family's holdings are extravagantly vast and varied, possessing shares in everything from oil fields in Turkey to fisheries off the shores of Nova Scotia. The downturn of a single plantation would scarcely be noticeable absence amidst the wicker state's annual profits. Never mind that the accrued wealth held in banks and markets across the world is already significantly enough to persist for at least several lifetimes. And, as I have previously stated thus, I am hardly a business winter kid, possessing the acumen that would allow the plantation to turn calamity to glorious success. To the contrary, I am sure that the crop will fail. Indeed, since receiving Mr. Giles' letter, I have resolved to close the facility as even the thought of the efforts necessary to recover the plantation once this crisis has reached its resolve bores me to tears. I don't need the money, cotton hose. Better to simply close the damn thing and be done with it. But not yet. No. Not yet. You see, though, I care little for coffee or the beans from whence it comes. Since father's death, I have developed an obsession with the inexplicable... I've learned far more than I once could have ever imagined. For eight years scouring the world, defying my more natural inclinations to merely abide in an existence of simple luxury, I have seen things, many wonderful and strange. I have gradually begun to ever so gently peel back the thin veneer that separates our waking world from how things truly are. And God's is it exhilarating and terrifying. It is in this pursuit that I find myself returning to Columbia. For in his report, Mr. Giles admitted that, while he did not know where in the rumor began that the plantation was being haunted, shortly after the disappearances began, a word was on the breath of every man, white and brown, still remaining at the facility 
Rotunda. The name previously a complete unknown to me. Pointed research into the matter offered but little illumination. Described as a changeling who often takes the form of a loved one or beautiful woman to lure victims into its grasp. Reports vary across the region with little support ranging from one account to the next. My study could not even reach a consensus regarding the fate of the thing's victims. Whether their blood is drunk like fine wine or they are devoured whole. Most odd is that the creature's shape-shifting ability is often reported as imperfect some aspect of the being's true form remaining visible while the rest is disguised. Sometimes a deformed leg. I do not believe this last. In my experience with the fantastic, such a chink in the predator's armor, some telltale sign enabling the unwary prey to spot his otherwise indistinguishable hunter, is more likely to be wishful thinking than actual reality. An illusion of hope. Though I had never heard of the Tunda prior to Mr. Guile's skeptical report, I have known its like. I do not anticipate its identification will be so conveniently forthcoming. Now, having departed from New York to the port of Cartagena, I have nothing to do but wait until I make my landing. I rode ahead to Mr. Guile's requesting he provide an escort to meet my ship and guide me to the plantation. With luck, I shall avoid the pitfalls of my previous excursion here, and ought to be arrived to the property within the month. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. November 20th, 1910. The situation of the plantation has degraded far worse than reported in Mr. Giles' letter. Since I last wrote, good weather favored my ship's passage, and I was pleasantly surprised to be met upon deparkation by Mr. Lyle McCready within Mr. Giles' employ. A veteran of the Indian War, Mr. McCready is a strong, capable sort, if in possession of something of a sour disposition. Still, his demeanor improved markedly when I revealed the case of good Kentucky bourbon stored within my luggage and soon he and the two porters he had secured me well on my way to the facility. With two mounts per man, we made good time, far better than my previous expedition. Within ten days had traveled almost three hundred miles to the plantation, near the Venezuelan border at Cucuta. The mood of our little party took a discernible downturn this morning as we neared our destination and soon all traces of goodwill had retreated from Mr. McCready's stony countenance, his eyes shifting continuously from one side of the trail to the other. His hand never strayed far from the large revolver already loosened in the holster worn upon his hip. All the while, the looming trees seeming to close in around our little band. We were perhaps three miles from the plantation when the smell ambushed us. The customary bitterness of the coffee beans mixed with a sick sweetness as they turned sour. There's something unsettling about the final leg of the journey that took me several uncomfortable minutes to identify. 
the sounds of the jungle, or rather their absence. Other than the gentle hoofbeats of our mules along the worn dirt track, the foul air was silent, empty of bird call and insect alike. The land was already dead, the presence of the plantation merely artificially extending the semblance of life. Passing between the fields of rotted plants, we at last reached the facility proper. It appeared much as I remembered from my youth, a high wire fence surrounding the large drying shacks, shucking annex, and mills adjoining the modest administrative buildings which served as both office and living area for Mr. Giles and the overseers. A bit farther down the road, I could just spy the small outcrop of buildings comprising the workers' village. I recalled from my last trip an omnipresent haze of smoke hanging over the hut from cooking fires and stoves. A constant state of bustling motion as the pickers came and went from their barracks, joking and laughing in their shared camaraderie. But now the air was clear, the lack of movement as haunting as the silent jungle. We were greeted at the gate of the compound by Mr. Giles himself. Always a bear of a man, he seemed much unchanged from when I first met him, but for a great deal more gray in his beard. He ushered us into the relative safety of the wire fence, where we offloaded the mules and sent the porters on their way before proceeding to the office, Mr. Giles hobbling ahead on a makeshift crutch. While reiterating the profuse apologies of his original correspondence, he explained that since his letter, the tunda had become emboldened, his population of the camp dwindled. At night, its chilling cries, a strange amalgam of animal howl and maniacal cackle, could be heard echoing throughout the surrounding jungle. Mr. Giles had temporarily reintegrated armed patrols into the daily routine, hoping to catch the creature unaware, but the diminished manpower had forced him to participate in the hunt himself. On one such excursion about a week past, he witnessed the man on his flank jerked violently into the brush. Mr. Giles charged after the victim, his yell startling the rest of the stalking party. In the ensuing conflagration, one of the workers discharged his rifle into the jungle where Mr. Giles had disappeared, inadvertently striking him through the thigh. The wound, while painful, had fortunately avoided major blood vessels and was not life-threatening. In the days since, Mr. Giles has suspended the patrols, deciding that the likelihood of success did not outweigh the associated hazards. More so, his injuries served as a catalyst to drive out those few workers heretofore still remaining at the camp, effectively making such regular hunts impossible. The only souls still manning the plantation were Mr. Giles himself and a half-dozen white overseers with whom he shared administrative living space. Nine men, all told, with the addition of myself and Mr. McCready. As Mr. Giles provided us with this update, I could not help the niggling suspicion that gradually began to worm its way into my mind. My thoughts turned to that one unlikely detail of my research, in which the tunda is able to transmogrify all but one of its lower limbs. Though I continue to doubt this limitation, if true, would a seemingly wounded leg, well wrapped in blood-soaked bandages, not serve as a capable disguise? But no. Surely others saw the occurrence of the injury, helped him treat it, and what's more, 
the man remembers details of our first meeting from all those years past. I've decided I will not besmirch his dignity to require a more detailed examination of his leg, at least not until circumstances demand it. Night has fallen, and I am ending the sentry. But I have not yet heard the strange echoing cries Mr. Giles described. Perhaps some predatory instinct has warned the beast what my arrival portends, and sent it scurrying back to its lair. I'm not some native, crippled by fear and superstition, nor am I a typical westerner, handicapped by willful ignorance and denial. I almost pity the poor thing. Tonight I will rest, for the long journey has left me utterly sapped, but tomorrow the hunt begins in earnest. November 21st, 1910. Morning. God damn me for a fool. In the night, Mr. Giles went missing along with three of the remaining overseers. We are now but five left. Myself, Mr. McCready, and Mrs. Gerard, Buckwald, and Foster. The beast did not make its presence known. None of us heard or observed any sign of their departure, and thus I cannot determine whether Mr. Giles was in fact the creature in disguise or merely another of its victims. I've drastically underestimated my foe. I've ordered Mr. McCready to outfit the men with supplies and an abundance of firearms. It is my intent to make our way into the jungle and track the hellspawn to where it must now be resting, drowsy from gorging itself, and make an end to it. November 21st, 1910. Evening. We entered the jungle as planned, and soon had the thing's trail. Though McCready and the others are experienced woodsmen, they did not have the requisite knowledge to track the thing only vestigially of our world, as I do. As we went, I attempted to educate them in the means of identifying such a trail sign, but with minor success. Near midday, we emerged into an unnatural clearing, perhaps 20 feet in diameter. Its perimeter was marked by four large standing stones about eight feet in height and covered in symbols unknown to any of us, but appearing to be of exotic origin. My nearest available analogy is some early proto-Arabic writing I once studied at the British Museum of London. The north-facing stone was knocked asunder by some unknown means effectively breaking the circle. As the others rested, I made an examination of the clearing wherefore I came upon a small artifact. The likeness of a woman carved from a white compound, perhaps bone, and oddly warm to the touch. Placing the idol in my pocket, I moved to rouse the men and continue our pursuit when I discovered that Mr. Buckwald had vanished. Upon this realization, Mrs. Gerard and Foster were driven to rage their anger misguidedly directed against me. Apparently they believed they would have been otherwise long departed from the plantation had I not insisted on making my visitation, and blamed me for what they now perceived as all but certain doom. As they moved against me, throwing me to the ground or removing large knives from their belts in a wholly threatening manner, my defense came from a most unexpected quarter. As Mr. McCready drew his great pistol, and in short order splattered the contents of both men's skulls over the jungle floor. Helping me to my feet, Mr. McCready suggested we retire to the plantation, 
load up the mules with the remaining supplies, and move to return to Cartagena. Though no part of me cried achingly to continue our pursuit of the Tunda, I was forced to agree with his assessment of our unfavorable situation, and acquiesced to this proposed course of action. I refused to take full blame for getting lost on the way back to the compound for, as I have said, my woodcraft is highly specialized in tracking those beings of the supernatural. In truth, Mr. McCready should have insisted on leading far sooner than he did. By the time he took command of our route and got us back on the proper heading, twilight had fully set in. I'm unsure whether it was my superior perception or divine intervention that allowed me to step past the hidden pit unharmed. But in either case, Mr. McCready was not as fortunate. The hole, one of the traps previously set to catch the creature, had been dug about eight feet deep. The bottom arranged with sharp stakes coated with a foul-smelling substance. Even in the waning light, I could make out the pool of blood rapidly forming beneath Mr. McCready from where he lay impaled. One hand toward me in a pleading gesture, desperation emanating from his pain-stricken face. I briefly debated making an attempt to remove him from the pit, but an ominous stirring of the nearby undergrowth made me reconsider. I am not proud that I left him there, but there was nothing to be done. His imminent death agonizingly obvious. His pleading sobs will surely haunt my dreams. I have successfully returned to the administrative building and made a makeshift barricade to bar the door. Tomorrow I shall load the mules and begin my long journey to the coast. November 22nd, 1910 The morning sun awoke me from an uneasy sleep. Moving to the paddock to settle the mules, I found the poor beast slaughtered. Black tongues already swelling where they lay amidst the bed of their own innards. Contemplating my options, I moved back towards the office. I was startled by a low series of moans emanating from near the entrance gate. Drawing my pistol and wary of a trick, I cautiously made my way to locate the source. I was shocked to find two bodies sprawled in the dirt outside the locked gate. The first was Mr. McCready, pale and still leaking from the puncture wound in his thigh. His belt and scraps of clothes tied to stem the worst of the flow. Next to him lay Mr. Giles, naked, his bullet-wounded legs swollen and angry red. Each man in turn begged for my help, imploring me to let him into the gate and shoot the other who was clearly the monster in disguise. As I stood silent and unsure, contemplating these two men and their similarly wounded legs, their entreaties became first more desperate, then violent. In a sudden flash of inspiration, I knew the only choice to make. I shot both men in the head. To my disappointment, neither reverted to the Tunda's true form. But then none of my research indicated such a revealing would occur. Even if both were in fact who they claimed, I cannot feel much regret as neither would have survived the journey ahead in such a state without the mules. I've rigged one of the saddlebags to allow me to carry as many supplies as I am comfortably able. Pistols and ammunition ready at my belt. 
I have now traveled my intended route three times in my life, and I am confident I can find my way. Perhaps once I reach the village in which Mr. Casper met his untimely demise, I'll be able to acquire a mule or even a porter. Three hundred miles over stinking, inhospitable land, stalked by an otherworldly being is nothing to a man of my experience. A trifle. Yes. Nothing at all. Not long ago, I wrote there are a thousand ways to die in the Colombian rainforest. As I finish this entry, a low keening wail rising from the surrounding jungle amends me. A thousand and one. For more information, including pictures and videos of the stories told on this podcast, or to suggest stories for future episodes, please visit us at CreepyPod on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Or email us at CreepyPod at gmail.com. All stories told on this podcast can be found at creepypastawikia.com and are protected by a Creative Commons license. Some rights reserved unless otherwise stated. The Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Home of Creepy for disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas. SCP Archives with full cast storytelling. Horror Queers, genre commentary from the LGBTQ perspective. The Blue Crew for horror centric interviews. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Item number SCP-5186. SCP-7160. SCP-7533. Object class. Euclid. Keter. Safe. Special containment procedures. Spreading across the hemisphere and kicking up vast amounts of ash and dust. <laughs> the only thing I could hear was 7219 <laughs> laughing. <laughs> Do you remember your name? Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. I feel them again. Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. They're in my ears! 
Heartland Counseling. Appointment update. Nobody understands! SCP Archives is a weekly fiction podcast. Each episode, we dive into the strange, the unknown, and the... Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at scparchives.com.